Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, that question launched me on a deep dive into the history of my faith tradition as an evangelical Christian. And that led me into various different areas and outlets and eventually encountering the ancient Catholic Church. It looms large in church history there, and I began for the first time to read from actual Catholic sources. And it was then that it dawned on me that I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholics and what they believed was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I am joined by Catholic anthropologist Carla Broussard to talk about anticipating these Protestant objections to Catholic ideas. Here's how it works, essentially. We have this Catholic idea like the papacy, for example, or Mary, the saints, or tradition. We have these Catholic ideas and there are common Protestant objections to these ideas that often you'll hear uh, Protestant apologists on, on YouTube or speakers or in books push back against these ideas with these very common and, and, and frequently used responses. Well, this week, Carlo brings us the response to those objections. How to, in kindness, uh, cordially, in compassion, thoughtfully, kindly, Christianly respond to these Protestant objections to our Catholic beliefs. It really helps to cut through a lot of the malaise surrounding apologetics and how to talk about our faith and equips us to understand what somebody might say back to our beliefs and how to gently respond in kind to really settle, but move forward those kinds of conversations. It's a great conversation between Carlo and myself, and I'm really happy to have him on the show once again. It's a lovely episode. This conversation and all others of this show are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. If you want to help support this show, believe in the work that we're doing here, please head over to those links in the show notes and see how you can do that to keep this thing going and growing, God willing, week after week. And thank you so much for listening and your support. And now, without any further ado, my conversation with Carlo Broussard from Catholic Answers on responding to those common Protestant objections. It's a great conversation, friends. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. If you're watching on YouTube, hey, thanks for hanging out here. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and the bell so you get notified when these videos come out each and every week. And if you're on podcast, hey, we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash the cordial Catholic to watch what you are listening to. Uh, this week, I am joined by staff apologist, Catholic Answer staff apologist, Carlo Broussard. He is a sought-after speaker, columnist, regular guest on Catholic Answers Live. He has all kinds of articles and, and videos and some fantastic books. We've had him on the show before talking about these books, like uh, his fantastic book, Purgatory is for Real. We've had him on, on that topic. And Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer Biblical Objections to the Catholic Faith. 
Catholic Ideas, and this week he's back to talk about a book that's kind of the the accompanying book, I think, Carlo, in this kind of uh, right. th- this little dance we're doing here. This is like the the, the dance partner. That's <laughs> a weird metaphor. Weird analogy. No, it's perfect metaphor. <laughs> it's meeting the Protestant response. How to answer common comebacks to Catholic arguments. Carlo, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here, and, and hello. Well, Keith, thanks for having me, brother. It's great to be back with you, man. I, I was thinking uh, this morning as I was reading through this book and driving into work and thinking about the ideas of, of this book, Carlo, that I wonder, between your accordion playing, okay, and Jimmy Aiken's <laughs> square dance calling, and I'm sure that Trent Horn probably plays the French horn just based on this, you know, the, the, the last name, I, I think there's probably a promising little kind of weird Catholic answers band, doo-wop group kind of ensemble here. You guys ever considered that kind of I idea maybe perhaps that's in the future yeah, but we I, have yet to consider it in the immediate present if this book doesn't work out for you carlo i think that you know why not I might, oh yeah I might, I might have to go back to the bars playing cajun music right yeah, yeah yeah look i think based on the 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 success of this book and how much i love it uh, carlo i think you're fine uh, sticking with it, this as your, as your full-time well, blessed be god Stay hopefully job. god has the same plan in mind <laughs> it's it's fantastic i want to ask you in a minute to, to kind of outline the uh the genesis and kind of the the structure of this book because it's pretty interesting it's pretty unique and I think a fantastic addition to the stuff that's already out there that you put out there yourself Carlo but I want to say first of all that this is I think what is so needed right now in this world of of YouTube responses and responses to the responses and you know your your friend I've mentioned him Catholic Answers Apologist Trent Horn has this has yes. this has a rule where he won't respond to a response he wants to debate the person uh, you know, head on. At some point, you can't respond to a person's response video or your response video. It just gets kind of crazy. But yeah. there's a lot I'm of infinite tune. Yeah, th- th- there's there's a lot of that out there on YouTube these days, where an apologist will put something out, and then somebody responds to that in a video, and that apologist responds back to that video, and then and then right ad, ad nauseum. Your book, I think, cuts through a lot of that that malaise, a lot of that chaff, and and equips us, if I may say so myself, to anticipate what somebody might say in objection to this Catholic idea you're, you're bringing forward and know yeah. how to kind of anticipate and, and counter, you know, kindly, compassionately, intelligently, that response that often comes trotting out as sure. soon as you get this thing out of your mouth. So I think, Carlo, this is a, the perfect time for a, a work like this to, to, to cut through some of all the, the, the yeah. endless responses, right? Right. Yeah, well, I appreciate that insight, Keith, and I appreciate your kind words. Yeah, so the book is ordered toward defending Catholic arguments in contrast with the previous book within this conversation, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, which was set out to defend Catholic beliefs against charges of contradicting particular biblical passages. So in that book, Uh, I addressed 50 objections that took the form, how can the church teach X when the Bible says Y? Alleged contradictions between what we believe and what the Bible says. And so I go through these objections and show that no contradiction uh, holds water. There is no contradiction and that the Catholic belief is actually consistent with that particular biblical text in light of other biblical texts, etc. 
meeting the Protestant response, I'm setting out to defend traditional Catholic arguments. For all these years, 2,000 years, two millennia, we've been presenting these arguments in support of our Catholic beliefs, particular biblical passages that we appeal to as biblical support, as a source of divine revelation, or a means of transmitting divine revelation from the one source, Jesus, uh, to support a particular Catholic belief. And so the question often arises, Keith, which I've encountered time and time and time again from people who just get started in apologetics. They learn these Catholic arguments rooted in particular passages in the New Testament, and then ask the question, why don't Protestants get it? Right? <laughs> they think it's so clear. Matthew 16, 18, Peter's the rock. He's got the keys of the kingdom. John chapter 6, you know, Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood six times within like eight verses. How can it be any clearer? And why don't Protestants buy the argument? Why don't they get it? And so the book is actually ordered towards setting out to answer that question, to answer the question, why don't Protestants buy our Catholic arguments? So I wanted to give a voice to our Protestant brothers and sisters, in particular Protestant apologists, both old and new, give them a voice for their alternative readings of the text, why they don't think the Catholic reading is the correct reading. And so I give them that voice, and then, of course, I engage with their comebacks to the Catholic arguments and show ultimately why they do not succeed in refuting the Catholic argument such that the Catholic argument stands and we can continue appealing to these biblical texts in support of our Catholic beliefs. And Keith, you know, my hope is that people reading the book can come walk away with, of course, a greater sense of confidence in knowing that the Catholic argument remains standing and is sound, but also that they can walk away with a greater respect for our Protestant brothers and sisters, knowing that our Protestant brothers and sisters aren't buying the arguments just because they're closed-minded or stubborn or irrational or just blinded by their anti-Catholic biases. They actually have reasonable comebacks to the Catholic arguments such that if I didn't have the knowledge that I had in apologetics and in biblical studies and I didn't have the resources to go to, like Jimmy Aiken or Tim Staples and everybody here at Catholic Answers and say, hey, you know, how do we assess this text? I might be inclined to buy into the Protestant reading of these texts. And so it allowed for me, and I hope it allows for the reader, to see that a Protestant can be justified in his or her Protestantism in the face of the Catholic argument, such that they're not just being irrational or closed-minded. Now, Ultimately, as we walk through those combats, as I said, Keith, I show, and I think persuasively and correctly, that these combats fail and do not succeed. Uh, but nevertheless, we can see that they're at least reasonable uh, to hold if not if one does not have the combat to the combat or the counter to the counter. Yeah. Uh, two things why I love you on this show, on, on, on my show, The Cordial Catholic, Carlo. Uh, first of all, you, you give a voice to those the objections, and you give a voice that's not a weak, 
uh, half need kind of voice, right? You're not presenting these, presenting these straw man arguments that, uh, of the Protestant view. You're given some some serious, weighty Protestant scholars and Protestant scholarship. You're presenting these 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 strong objections to these Catholic ideas, and then yeah. showing how you think they can be dismantled. And I think you're, I think you're right. You're you're quite persuasive in in the the way you address those or kind of come back against those uh, or, or respond to those kind of comebacks. But you don't just give this silly kind of really simple, you know, Jack chick track kind of like response to these Catholic guy, these, these objections, you're, you're yeah. putting a lot of meat on the bones of these Protestant arguments, which I think that, that wins, I, I think should win you a lot of favor in the eyes of these Protestant readers and people who are making these arguments, because you're not trying to give the easy way out. You're giving the, the meaty, the meaty argument and sure. you're, and, and you're, you're meeting that, you, you know, you're, you're, you're doing it in a way, Carlo, that I think, um, like you said, is meant to engender respect for that position, right? You, you yeah. want me as a Catholic, other Catholic readers, to walk away going, you know what? Yeah, like those are good objections. I have to actually wrestle with those things yeah. and, and bring a really fulsome Catholic re- response. It's, it's not just kind of painting all these Protestants as silly people or rational people right. or not well-wed people or not really historically grounded people. They they are they're they're the these Christians who are making these processes are making these these objections have good reasons for making those. So I think that yeah. that is a very cordial way of addressing this, Carlo. I think so. It's Absolutely, a, it's a perfect fit for for this show. It's very Canadian of you, you Carlo. Keith, I had your I had your show in mind yeah. when I was writing <laughs> yeah, the book. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you must have. It's, yeah. yeah, you know, you you bring up an interesting point that I is actually something intended when I set out to write the book that in my answers that I give to the comebacks, I intentionally wanted to put meat on the bones. I wanted to provide a Catholic uh, a resource that shows them how to make the argument based on a particular text because so often in popular apologetics – and popular apologetics, apologetic books, it's sort of uh, structured in a way that you have like the belief and then just a litany of scriptural quotations that are appealed to in support of the text without substantial exegesis of the text that shows you how and why the text lends itself toward the Catholic belief or outright proof texting the belief. And so in writing this book and addressing the comebacks, it allowed for me to exegete the passage in a way that teaches the Catholic how to handle the word of truth. Second Timothy 2.15 in the Dewey Rames translation, how to handle God's word in a way that's effective and persuasive in arguing for our position of belief rather than just Bible slinging verses. My verse against your verse and your verse against my verse. It's actually camping out, pitching the tent, so to speak, and camping out a little while with the text to exegete it and go through it and then coming out on the other side that the text indeed does support the Catholic position and we have reasoned argumentation to support that claim rather than just citing the passage. So the book provides an, a, a commentary on at least these particular biblical passages that we traditionally appeal to for these beliefs. It, it offers the Catholic a scriptural commentary on these biblical texts. So that was one other good fruit that I was happy with uh, about the book and how it came out. 
Yeah, I think you've done a great job with that, Carlo. It's it's fantastic, and it does it it it, it takes this seriously, both the the objection and then and then the response. I think that gives people a lot to to chew into for the the, the newer seasoned apologists. I think to really understand their faith and and where people people might not be convinced of the Catholic position and, and exactly how that might might go out. So I want to dig into a few of these with you. There's there's tons okay. to go into. We we couldn't even cover a quarter of this book, I don't think, in our time here. Right. But right. I want I want to give listeners a sense of, of how some of these things work and how we can respond to some of these challenges. And I think we probably best to begin with the papacy because it is one of those very distinctive Catholic teachings, as your your friend Joe Heschmeyer would would would, uh, would note. I think uh, the, the the distinctive. The, I, I think he's yeah. mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So he says, right? I don't know. <laughs> Actually, no. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree. I yeah, I do too. He's a great guy, a very good friend of the show. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. There's, there are a lot of places to dig into with the papacy, and you cover all yeah. kinds of different angles and, and ideas. Um, I, I want to get to uh, Peter's role at the council in a minute because that's a really interesting fact that is often brought up, uh, brought up as as this more sophisticated kind of response and just dealing with the keys or, or the rock. It's like, oh, but wait, yeah. this over here. But I want to leave that aside for a minute. I do want to deal with the idea of the rock because Peter is called the rock by Jesus. And the the most frequent refrain that, you know, we will claim, okay, he's the rock. Here it is. It's, it's very clear. You said this before, Carlo. The very frequent refrain will be, well, well look, the, the way that Jesus uses the word rock, the Holy Spirit's led the author of the text to translate it this way or this way. And look, it's, it's feminine here. It's masculine here. It can't possibly mean Peter. It must mean his confession or must mean yeah. so, so, something else. And, it, you know, that, that is a very common response, uh, almost a, a trope sometimes. But it, it, it can catch up. The Catholic, he goes, oh, well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you can you walk us through uh, maybe that idea the the yeah. the Catholic claim the 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 Protestant kind of objection and then how we can how we can work to make sense of that in light of our Catholic beliefs? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So the Catholic argument is that in Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, which in Greek the Greek word is Petros, and upon and Jesus says and upon this rock, the Greek word for rock is Petra. I will build my church. Now, we as Catholics, we appeal to this text and say, see, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter and says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The metaphorical rock refers to Peter. Therefore, Jesus is making Peter the visible foundation of his church here on earth. And wherever the foundation is, there's the true church of Jesus. So wherever Peter is, there's the true church of Jesus. Peter is the visible identifying marker of the true church of Jesus Christ. However, a Protestant will come back to at that argument and respond and say, well, you're assuming that the metaphorical rock is referring to Peter. But when you look in the Greek text, there are two distinct words being used. Petros for the new name for Simon and Petra the Greek word that's being used for the metaphorical rock. And it is true that these are two distinct words. Now, many a Protestant apologists will infer from these two distinct words that the second rock, the metaphorical rock, must not refer to Peter. It must be referring to something else. The rationale being that if the metaphorical rock, Jesus intended the metaphorical rock to be Peter, then the same word 
would have been used in both instances. And so that's the comeback. And so the question now is, well, how do we answer that comeback? Well, as I point out in the book, Keith, first of all, right off the bat, just because two different words are being used for something, it doesn't follow that those two words are referring to two different things. I can hold a rock in my hand and call it a stone or a rock, two different words, and have the same reference. So just because there are two different words, it doesn't necessarily follow that these two words are referring to two different things. So that would be one possible response to diffuse the challenge. But I think we can go further, Keith, as I do in the book. So the common classic Catholic response is that, well, the reason why Petra, the feminine noun, is not used in the first instance for Simon's new name is because you cannot use a feminine noun for a man's name. So that, Keith, would account for why Petra is not used in both instances and why a masculine noun would be used for Simon's new name and the common feminine noun Petra being used for the metaphorical rock. But... Many Protestant apologists have pushed back on that and said, no, 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 that's not really the argument here. The argument, and I cite the Protestant scholars in my book, the argument rather is that if Jesus had intended the metaphorical rock to be Peter, then Petros would have been used in the second instance with regard to the metaphor, the metaphorical rock. So it should have read, you are Petros, and upon this Petros, I will build my church. And so the question becomes, and the challenge is, why isn't Petros used in the second instance? Why is there a difference between Petros and Petra? Why is Petra used rather than Petros, given the Catholic claim that the metaphorical rock is Peter? So that's the really that really gets to the heart of the objection. And so in response, as I point out in my book, we have plausible explanations as to why Petros is not used with regard to the metaphorical rock upon which Christ builds his church. One very plausible explanation that's very persuasive, in my opinion, is that Matthew simply intended to preserve the distinction between the proper noun or the proper name, Petros, and the common noun, Petra. Based on this text, Keith, Simon's new name is Petros. So Petros, the masculine noun for rock, is now reserved as a proper noun or a proper name. And it would be unintelligible, it wouldn't make sense for Matthew to use that proper name with regard to a metaphor that Jesus is speaking about, namely a metaphorical rock. It's more reasonable to use the common noun for the metaphor and preserve the distinction between a common noun and the proper noun, thus Petros, the proper noun, and Petra, the common noun. So that's one plausible explanation as to why Matthew doesn't use Petros, the proper name, in the second instance with regard to the metaphor, because that would have been like Jesus saying, you are Peter, and upon this Peter, I will build my church. It's more reasonable for Matthew to preserve the distinction between the proper and the common nouns. Now, check this out, Keith. As I point out in my book, another plausible explanation, uh, and even uh, R.T. France 
um, makes this connection that it's it's possible that Jesus is preserving uh, the parallel between what he's doing here in Matthew 16, 18 and the parable he gave in Matthew 7, 24 through 25, where he talks about how the wise man builds his house upon rock, Petra, feminine Greek noun for rock being used in both verses 24 through 25, and how the wise man builds his church upon the house, excuse me, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, and when the rains and the floods come, the house is not taken away. And it's possible that Matthew preserves Petra with regard to the metaphorical rock here in Matthew 16, 18, to preserve the parallel in order to convey to the reader that Jesus is the wise man that he spoke about in the parable in Matthew 7, who's building his house, the household of God, which St. Paul says is the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, upon the rock, in this case, Peter. And so Petra is used for the metaphor, for the metaphor, in order to preserve the parallel with the parable in Matthew chapter 7. And so those are a couple of plausible explanations as to why Matthew does not use Simon's new name, Petros, in the second instance, but rather uses the common noun, Petra, for the metaphor, uh, metaphorical rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church. <laughs> I, I love how in-depth that goes, Carlo. Honestly, it, it, again, this isn't just a surface treatment of this very surfacey Protestant objection. You know, we're, we're digging into the, right down into the weeds here on, on, yeah. on the nitty-gritty of these objections and then how to discuss them. And I love that you're using here a Protestant scholar to, to make this connection between the, the parable of the builder on, on the rock and, and the situation with, with Peter as the rock. I mean, you're, this is not a Carlo Roussard idea you've pulled out of nowhere. You, you found this, this idea, this parallelism being seen by Protestant scholars, right? That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and you know, Keith, another assumption, now a Protestant might push back and say, well, Carlo, you're assuming that Petros means the same thing as Petra. And this gets to the common charge that the, not only is there a difference in the two Greek words, but the two Greek words actually mean different things, which some Protestant apologists will assert. But in response, we can actually appeal to Protestant scholarship to affirm that the two Greek words actually mean the same thing, that there's no difference between the two. So, for example, D.A. Carson affirms this, Craig Keener affirms this, as well as the late Lutheran theologian Oscar Coleman all of whom affirm that there really is no difference in meaning between these two Greek words, the only difference being with their gender, Petros being masculine, Petra being feminine. So in light of that assumption that they mean the same thing, we can make the argument that it makes sense that Peter would be the metaphorical rock upon which Christ is going to build his church because Jesus just changed Simon's name to rock. Why would Jesus indicate to the reader, to us, the listener, that he's changing Simon's name to rock within the very context of talking about building a church upon a metaphorical rock if Peter is not that metaphorical rock. So given the name change, that sheds further light upon why Peter is this metaphorical rock upon which Christ is building his church. Otherwise, there would be no point in changing Simon's name to rock. <laughs> 
<laughs> well said. Well said. And one of the then common kind of pushbacks sometimes would be, well, isn't Jesus the rock, Carlo? How, yeah. Right? How like, that that is then the next kind of sometimes card that's played, and and rightly so, we call him the rock all, all the time. He's the he's the cornerstone. Sure. He's the foundation of you know. He's yeah. He's is Jesus. Isn't isn't he the rock? How can Peter be the rock, Carlo? Isn't he, he talking about himself in in, in his comments yeah. in these contexts? Well, the answer would be no, not within its literal historical context. And if it if Peter cannot be rock, simply because elsewhere in the Bible Jesus is said to be the foundation of the church, well, then it would follow that we cannot be the light of the world, because elsewhere the Bible says Jesus is the light of the world, or we cannot be priests. Because the Bible says elsewhere that Jesus is the one true priest or that we cannot be mediators or intercessors because elsewhere the Bible says that Jesus is the one mediator. So that would be my first response to tease out the logic embedded in the comeback and show how it would lead to denying other things that most Christians affirm. Yes, even though Jesus is the light of the world, we're the light of the world too. Jesus is the one mediator, we're mediators too. Jesus is the one true priest, we're also priests, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9. What's the rationale behind that? The rationale is, is that we are not priests apart from Jesus, we are priests in and through Jesus. We are not mediators or intercessors apart from Jesus, but only in and through him. We are lights of the world, not apart from Jesus, but in and through Jesus, the one true light of the world. Similarly, Keith, as a Catholic, affirming Peter to be the visible foundation of Jesus' church here on earth does not take away from Jesus the one true foundation, but rather we affirm the foundation of Peter, that the foundation that Peter is, only because he is grafted into Jesus. It is only because of Jesus that Peter is the visible foundation of his church here on earth. It is only in and through Jesus that Peter can be and have a foundational role in the church here on earth. And finally, Keith, I would just point out, as I point out in my book, is that metaphors can be used in different ways depending on the context in which it's being used. Just like the light metaphor, just like the mediation concept, just like the concept of being a priest. So with regard to the metaphor of being a foundation in the other texts, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says that Jesus is the foundation, Paul's intention is not to specify which of the apostles are going to be the leader of the church. Paul's intention is simply to specify that the church is the foundation, and we all build, the ministers of the church, as well as all Christians, build up the church. And think about this, Keith, in that very text, 1 Corinthians 3.10, in the, in the immediate context, Paul talks about apostles building on the foundation that is Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says he's the one doing the building. Is Paul wrong here? Because Jesus is the builder. But yet Paul says others are building. So there we have yet another example of how metaphors can be used in different contexts. So when we come to Matthew 16, 18, the question becomes, how is the metaphor being used here? Is it being used to specify Jesus alone as the foundation of his church? Or is it being used to specify Peter as the visible foundation of the church, while at the same time recognizing Jesus as the ultimate foundation? And as I point out in my book, Keith, it's the latter. In light of the name change, Simon's new name means rock, and then Jesus immediately talks about building his church upon a rock. In light of the fact that the second person 
singular pronoun is used, second person pronoun singular is used, I think if I, my memory serves me correctly, like seven times within just like four verses, I say to you, Simon Borjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Uh, but uh, but and I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. The whole context, everything that Jesus is saying here is directed to Peter. And that Jesus builds his church upon the rock comes within the very midst of Jesus directing everything to St. Peter thus giving us good reason to think that Peter is the rock. And so for these reasons and many other reasons that I point out in the book, we have good reason to conclude Peter indeed is the metaphorical rock upon which Christ is building his church. (laughs) I'm convinced. (laughs) Done. You got me. You got me. (laughs) That's awesome, Carlo. You've almost, I think, anticipated my next question here, which is kind of funny, Carlo, because I'm going to bring up the idea, the, the pushback that, okay, Peter's not that unique. All the other apostles are also given the the authority to bind and loose by, by Jesus later on in, in Matthew, yeah. just you know, two chapters later, I think, almost exactly. And that that that's then commonly one of these things that's used to undermine the the, the, the papacy. This idea that we as Catholics believe this is a unique office that, that Peter holds. The 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 comeback is well, no 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 look all the apostles also have the, the authority to bind and loose like Peter is given. So there's no uniqueness of Peter. The, the apostles also have this. Er, ergo, you know, eventually no one has this. And that kind of, you know, I mean, the, the apostles, even, even if we're going to say the apostles had this versus just Peter, there's still things that have worked out in that argument. It doesn't just mean that that, that doesn't also pass on in some way, but it often is kind of used to dilute the waters a little bit and say, look, well, if if these guys all also had it, then it wasn't that important. And maybe when they all died, it went away. But Peter never was unique in that sense. He was just another apostle, maybe the leader of the apostles, but not certainly unique. So, what do you say to to address the idea that okay, well, all the apostles had this same kind of power as, or authority as as Peter? Yeah, well, I think there's one hidden premise in that comeback, namely that whenever something is said of two people, those two people are equal with regard to uh, what yeah. is said about them. So here you have binding and loosing being said of Peter and being said of all the apostles. Therefore concluding, Peter must be equal to the other apostles in his binding and loosing. But actually, I think we can challenge that hidden premise there and show it demonstrably to be false in sacred scripture. Getting back to what I was talking about earlier, uh, the, the, the image of the light of the world is used of Jesus and us. Does that mean we're equal to Jesus and being lights of the world? I don't think so. The priestly, the concept of being a priest, is applied to Jesus and Christians. Does that mean we're equal to Jesus and being priests? I don't think so. How about the the image of a shepherd? That is without a doubt applied both to Jesus and Peter. And we can include all the other apostles, right? Does that mean that Peter and the apostles are equal to Jesus and being shepherd of Christ's flock here on earth? As a Catholic, we would say absolutely not. We affirm they are shepherds. But just because the image is used of both, that does not mean they are equal with regard to shepherding. So that's one way that we could respond to this comeback, tease out the hidden premise and show that the hidden premise is false. And if the hidden premise is false, 
then the argument doesn't go through. This would not be a successful comeback to the Catholic claim. And furthermore, Keith, I, I would argue that this sort of comeback ignores the other aspects as to yeah. why we think Peter has a unique role in the church. So it's not merely the language of binding and loosing, but it's the exclusive command given to Peter to bind and loose, separate from and apart from the collective command that's given to the apostles to bind and loose. If Jesus is giving this command singly and exclude, like, uh, is excluding Peter exclusively giving, if, P, if Jesus is giving this command to Peter in a singled out way, whereas he gives the command to the apostles collectively, we can infer from that that Peter has a unique and primary role in binding and loosing on his own. Whereas the other apostles only are able to exercise that authority of binding and loosing in a collective way, right? There's some authority to bind and loose within their local churches, but they can only do so insofar as they are united with the one who has it in a primary sense, namely Peter. And then, of course, it fails to take into consideration the keys of the kingdom, yeah. which I argue yeah. for in the book, uh, should be interpreted in light of Isaiah 22:22 and the keys of the key of the house of David given as a symbol or a symbol for the authority of the chief royal steward of the kingdom of David. And we should interpret the keys of the kingdom of heaven being given to Peter in light of that context, inferring that Peter is the chief royal steward of Jesus's kingdom here on earth, which is the Davidic kingdom, but transfigured, renewed, and perfected. And so we would have to take that into consideration as well in order to show that Peter's instruction to bind and loose is something that he possesses on his own as the chief royal steward in a way that can be separate from the collective authority that the apostles have together. All right. So the Protestant then says, okay, Carlo, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying here, but let's look a little bit deeper into the New Testament and the Acts of the Apostles. And I think one of the 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 rather robust challenges these days that I, that often come out from from very intelligent and reasonable and and well-read educated sharp Protestant apologists on the issue of the papacy is the Jerusalem Council. This comes out yeah. time and again, and I think it's there is way behind this argument that I think you you wrestle with very well. I think, and you're probably, I got to say that your chapter on this is fantastic. But Thank it's something you. that we really have to take seriously as Catholics when we see, okay, if we're going to call Peter the first pope and make these bold claims, like our friend Joe Heschmeyer does in, in his in his treatment of, of this, we have to look at something like the Council of Jerusalem in Acts, and, and a lot of the, the pushback goes, well, okay, we don't see Peter acting like the pope here. We don't see him convening the council. We don't see him speaking first. We don't see him making a definitive judgment. There are, and, and you deal with all these in your chapter on this. I don't know if you want to take one or two of these because we again could be here for, for a long, long time talking about just this topic, Carlo. But what would you say to respond to some of those kind of comebacks uh, that, that have quite a bit of meat in the bone? Because we, yeah. you know, he's not, he's not very, very popish in, in this scene. I, I, from 
from a, from a bird's eye view, maybe Carlo, what do, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I would just challenge that assumption and argue that he does seem pretty darn popish, right? <laughs> uh, you, you threw out a few things. One, he doesn't convene the council. That is true, but it doesn't follow from that fact that he's not the Pope. Why? Because we don't believe as Catholics that a Pope must be the one to convene the council. All that is required is that for a council to be binding on the flock of Christ is that a pope, successor to St. Peter's, the Bishop of Rome, confirms, puts a stamp of approval on such a council. And so that Peter doesn't convene the council, that doesn't count as evidence against his role as the first pope. Now, you mentioned uh, Peter not giving any sort of definitive teaching. Well, I would just challenge that uh, claim. Because the text does indicate that Peter gives the definitive declaration on a theological issue concerning divine revelation. As you, Keith, and many of your listeners know, the issue concerning whether or not a man must be circumcised in order to be saved. And Luke tells us in Acts 15, 1 through 2, that this was no small debate. And Paul and Barnabas were debating certain Jewish Christians who were making this claim that you got to be circumcised and hold fast to the Mosaic law to be saved. But Paul and Barnabas were countering saying, no, you were saved by the grace of Christ through faith and were not saved uh, by way of circumcision. But Luke tells us even Paul and Barnabas could not settle the issue. They couldn't settle the debate. Rather, they decided to take it to Jerusalem to take it and by way of the instruction of Jesus, take it to the church, as he says in Matthew 18, 17. And so that's what they did. And Luke tells us in verse six of Acts 15 that the elders and the apostles convened to consider this matter. And Luke makes it a point, Keith, to to tell us that there was no small debate about this. And immediately after that, in verses seven through 11, Luke records the speech that Peter gives that lays down the law that definitively declares, on behalf of the church, we believe, Peter says, that we're just, uh, we're saved by the grace of Christ and not by circumcision. And then Luke begins to record a series of other events that took place. Immediately following Peter's declaration, he says, and they all were silent, which interestingly is coming right after in the narration of the events taking place, Indicating that there's no small debate, there's a lot of debate going on, Peter gives the definitive judgment, and then Luke tells us that they were silent. (laughs) And then he says, as the next part of the narration, Paul and Barnabas recount their deeds, and then James gives up to give his speech. Now, here's what's very interesting, Keith, as I point out in my book. There is a stark contrast between Peter's speech and James's speech. First and foremost— Notice who takes the initiative to settle the theological dispute. It's Peter, not James. So Peter does take the initiative at the council to definitively declare on behalf of the church, we believe, what is the truth of God's revelation concerning man's salvation. Pete James does not take that initiative. If James had equal amount of authority of Peter or more, he would have been have he would have been the one to take the initiative. And in fact, Keith, when we consider that historians, historical evidence suggests that this James at the Council of Jerusalem was the bishop of Jerusalem. Here you have a council in Jerusalem where you have the bishop of Jerusalem present. He's the head of that local church. 
And yet it's Peter, the one who takes the initiative and declares the truth of the matter. That in and of itself, Keith, in my opinion, gives us a strong, strong evidence that James does not have equal authority to Peter, but that James defers to the authority of Peter. And then we push forward and we see that James doesn't give any sort of definitive declaration on behalf of the church as to what we are to believe about God's revelation. Rather, he proposes disciplinary precepts in order to preserve the, to settle the conflict between new Jewish Gentile, excuse me, new Gentile converts to Christianity and Jewish converts to Christianity and suggest he says, it's my judgment that we should pose, impose upon these new Gentile Christians these certain precepts. And notice how the, the, the members of the council convened to consider James's proposal and then decided, yes, this is a good thing. But no such thing happened with regard to Peter's declaration. The council, there's no evidence from Luke's narration in Luke Acts 15 that the council fathers convened to consider what Peter had proposed. That was taken as truth. But they did consider whether they should implement James' proposal. And that yet again suggests, I would argue, Keith, that James does not have equal authority to Peter here, but an authority, yes, but less than a lesser rank of authority than Peter. Yeah, and this requires a careful reading of the text. I mean, certainly, right at face value, it look it looks like this objection has a lot of has a lot of standing, holds a lot of water. But like you say, there's there's almost the theological kind of here's what we believe that Peter says, and the kind of the pastoral response to actually implement these things in James's response, right? And they're very different. Yeah. If you actually piece those out and read and read them carefully, it, you do get this picture that I think becomes quite clear as you outline in the, in the book, Carlo, of what's actually what's actually happening here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're told, you know that. I mean, we're told explicitly after James makes his proposal that those present at the council convene to consider the matter and then issue in the decree that they're going to implement James's proposal. But as I said, no such thing yeah, takes yeah. place with regard to Peter. You would think that if James had more authority than Peter, then those present at the council would have been considering Peter's proposal about how a man is to be saved rather than James's proposal. And so the response of those present at the council, I think is a strong response to James in contrast to how they respond to Peter's proposal, a strong evidence that Peter is exercising a higher degree of authority than, than James. And is actually at the helm here at the council of Jerusalem. And that maps on to essentially what we profess uh, the papacy to be, the type of authority that the Bishop of Rome's successor to St. Peter has. Yeah, and part of you know, part of that uh, we've mentioned before on, on this show, I think in different contexts with you, Carlo, and other maybe other other book or conversation we had before. But yet, sometimes this is also a matter of just what what non Catholics understand the Pope to be, right? If you yeah. don't understand what the the actual authority of the Pope. You have a hard time seeing him, perhaps, in a, in an instance like this. The Pope is not going to barge in, wielding some kind of crazy power, and bowl everyone over and say, "Oh, this is how it is. G goodbye, council over," you know, kind of thing. Or right. necessarily even convene every single council. Like th th some of those, just those 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 baseline misconceptions of what the the Pope does by non-Catholics, or sometimes even Catholics might might 
color or, or bias you against seeing the papacy in some of these instances, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, one classic example of that is looking to Galatians 2.9, where Paul rebukes, I think it's Galatians 2.9, I might be mistaken on that, where Paul rebukes uh, Peter to his face concerning pulling away from eating with new Gentile Christians, right? In order not to offend the Jewish, the Judaizers or the Jewish Christians coming, I think, from Antioch. Uh, th- that's a classic text many Protestants will appeal to and says, see, Peter's not the Pope because they're, it's colored. I like the way you articulated that. Their preconceived notion of the papacy is colored by a false picture, right? It's colored by, uh, they're, they're looking through a certain lens that makes them look for Peter being impeccable when that's not yeah, yeah. essential to the papacy. And I think here, too, although the Pope does have the authority to just barge in and say, hey, this is how it's going to be, over and above, you know, you bishops, you don't have anything to say, right? Uh, he does have that authority, and that's precisely the Catholic claim of the supremacy of the bishop, bishop of Rome. In practice, he doesn't have to operate that way. He can allow for his bishops to come up with certain proposals, and ultimately he would approve of them, but allow bishops to exercise a legitimate authority that they have although ultimately subservient to his authority, but nevertheless a real authority. And so this is what we see here. We see Peter exercising his unique authority. We see the Bishop of Jerusalem and the other apostles and the elders present there exercising their legitimate authority as well. But the two are not in conflict with each other. In fact, through the Catholic paradigm, we can see that the apostles and the elders' authority is consistent with the unique and supreme authority that Peter has. (laughs) <laughs> well said, Carlo. Well said. As always, there's there's so many. I have a list of, of ones I want to touch on. There's just too many to actually touch on all of them, uh, which is, I think, a good problem to have for us, Carlo. It's a fantastic, yeah, we just do it again, right? Yeah, yeah, Another it's a, opportunity it's a for fan, an episode. Fantastic book. I wanted to do baptism, but I want to, but I, for time's sake, I want to skip, skip over that and go to the Eucharist. And I'm looking at page 119 in your in your book here. You're talking about the idea. Uh, where, you know, the Bread of Life Discourse, uh, John 6, Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and there are lots of objections that to this being literal from all kinds of different different angles and, and ways that Protestants can, uh, can approach this. Um, and I've dealt with this in all kinds of different ways on this show and in things I've, I've, I've written and people that I've had on here to talk about this. But I, I think one that, that stands out to me from the, the many of, that you deal with here is the idea that Jesus meant his words figuratively because elsewhere he speaks figuratively. He talks about himself as the door, as the vine, right? He's not a literal door, Carl. He's not an actual, actual right. vine. So how can we be so sure that he's talking about himself here, not just in a figure of speech? How can, uh, yeah. how, how can we be so sure... And we, gosh, we stake our Catholic faith on this. It's a pretty important tenet of the Catholic faith. If we're if we're mistaken in this, Carlo, then we've been a pretty big mistake in some of our fundamental beliefs, and we're doing yeah. something that's really backwards as, as sure. Catholics. So, how can we be so sure that he's not just t- talking in 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 figurative language again here, like he does so, uh, elsewhere? Yeah, and you know, to even strengthen strengthen the combat, Keith, yeah, the it, claim, the charge <laughs> is that. Where Jesus elsewhere has these I am statements in John's gospel itself, he speaks metaphorically. So in John 10, 9, Jesus speaks of himself as the door or the gate. I am 
the gate. In John 15, 5, he speaks of himself as the vine. I am the vine. And so the argument or the comeback is, well, if in John's gospel, where Jesus talks about has these I am statements, we take those statements to be figurative or metaphorical talk or speech. In the same gospel in John chapter 6, in the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus yet again uses an I am statement and saying, I am the bread of life and talking about the bread of life being his flesh. So if we're going to interpret these other passages figuratively, then it's consistent with our principle that we should interpret this I am statement here in John 6 as figurative as well. Or to state the comeback differently, if we as Catholics are going to interpret Jesus's I am statement, I am the bread of life, in John 6 literally, then we should be interpreting his other I am statements in John's gospel, I am the door, I am the vine, literally. So you can kind of feel the weight of that comeback there. So how do we respond? Well, it is true that in John 10, 9, I am the gate. John 15, 5, I am the vine. Jesus is speaking metaphorically. And it is true that we're asserting in John chapter 6, when he says, I am the bread of life and the bread that I would give is for the life of the world is my flesh. He's speaking literally. So the question becomes, why are we taking him literally here in John 6? but not literally in these other I am statements. And here's one key answer to that question. In the door in the vine passages, Keith, the audience does not take him literally. Nobody in the audience says, get the WD-40 so we can oil the hinges (laughs) on him. Nobody says in John 15, go get the clippers to clip off the leaves of Jesus. Whereas in John chapter 6, his audience does take him literally. They're freaking out. Like, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The Jews say in John chapter 6, verse 53. In John chapter 6, verse 60. The disciples say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So the audience does take him literally in John 6, but not in these other passages. And so that would be one reason to take Jesus literally here in John 6, but not literally in these other passages. Nowhere in these door in the door and vine passages do you see Jesus trying to correct the metaphorical understanding of his audience. He leaves it as it is. Why? Because they got it right. They took him metaphorically, and that was the correct understanding. In John chapter 6, we see something different. Jesus actually affirms the literal thoughts of the audience, both the Jews and the disciples. In response to the Jews, he doubles down and says six times in those eight verses, re-emphasizing to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That does not sound like he's easing up the difficulty that the Jews are having. Rather, he seems to be upping the ante, upping the difficulty, affirming the difficulty. And then in response to the disciples who are having a hard time, he appeals to his ascension. Now, That's pretty hard to believe, given its miraculous nature. Why would Jesus appeal to his ascension, which is going to be pretty darn hard to believe, given its miraculous nature, in order to ease the difficulty of his teaching to eat his flesh and drink his blood? That doesn't make sense. And then finally, Jesus actually lets his disciples walk away because of the difficulty that they are having with this teaching to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that Jesus lets them walk away and does not call them back to clarify their literal understanding and ease the difficulty, indicates to us that he's affirming the difficulty that they're having. He's affirming the literal thoughts 
that they're having. So given that evidence in John chapter 6, that's why we conclude that the I am statement, I am the bread of life, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, should be taken literally, but not taken literally when he's talking about I am the gate and I am the vine. There's evidence in the context to suggest a literal interpretation in John 6, but no evidence for a literal interpretation in John chapter 10, verse 9, in John chapter 15, verse 5. So that's sort of a summary of how I tackled this in my book. That's fantastic. And I guess you, you could broaden that even further to look at the the understanding of the early church as well, if you wanted to, right? Nobody was going on there saying Jesus was literally a door or literally a, a, a vine, but there's sure. abundance of evidence if you push things back a little bit further. And, and you, you you do include some some ideas from the early church fathers in these areas, but you could, you know, I, I think you probably intentionally keep it a little bit restricted. Yeah. You you could go, you know, a, a, a few decades, a, a, a century further and find a lot of a lot of this kind of thing being said about Jesus and, and understanding what he meant in that context in a very particular way, right? Yeah. So the book is focusing on the scriptural yeah. evidence. Yeah. But then we could ask the question, is there any early Christian attestation or confirmation, corroboration of our Catholic reading of these texts? And the answer is yes. It's all over in the early Christian writing such that it's a unanimous belief, right? That it provides for us a strong testament uh, to this belief being a part of the historic Christian faith and a part of divine revelation as well, part of sacred tradition. So, for example, Ignatius of Antioch writing about AD 107 and his letter to the Smyrnians is instructing the, the church in Smyrna about those who have heterodox opinions, those who are teaching things contrary to God's revelation, and he gives a litany of things, right? And within that list of heterodox opinions, Ignatius' list, or puts in that list, there are those who do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of Christ. Why? Uh, there are those who do not participate in the Eucharist. Why? Because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of Christ. And the reason why they didn't, these early Christians, some early Christians didn't believe the Eucharist to be the flesh of Christ is because they didn't believe Jesus to have any flesh whatsoever. So known as the docetist heresy or docetist heresy in early on. If you don't think Jesus was really in the flesh, well, then surely you're not going to believe the Eucharist to be the flesh of Christ. But notice the implicit hint there. There are some denying the Eucharist to be the flesh of Christ. And Ignatius identifies that as a heterodox opinion, something contrary to divine revelation. The implication being to profess the Eucharist as the flesh of Christ is orthodoxy and a part of the divine revelation. <laughs> Very well said, Carlo. That's fantastic. Look, there's I, I, again so much in here we could cover, and we don't have we don't have hours and hours to cover it. So uh, that's good. Uh, it's a good problem to have, Carlo. It's a fantastic book. Uh, I want to ask you to tell us a bit about where people can go to find this, uh, see more of you, hear more of you. There are plenty of appearances of yours on this fantastic show, so I'll put those links in in the the show notes for this episode where people can find and and hear more of your awesome stuff, but where else uh, should they go to check out this book and find more of your stuff uh, if they want to pick it up for themselves, Carla? What do, you, what do you think? Yeah, so basically, Keith, everything that I do is through Catholic Answers, so they can go to catholic.com, type 
and Carlo Broussard. You'll see there all of uh, the videos and the radio shows that I've done here at Catholic Answers, the articles that I write, both in the print edition and the online edition, uh, some videos that I've uh, produced earlier when I started with Catholic Answers called Ready Reasons. So at Catholic.com, that's where can, they can get everything. I do have my own website, CorloBruceOr.com, where I host sort of like the articles that I write for Catholic Answers and some of the videos, although I don't stay up to date on those because there's just so much. And I'm not very active on, so, well, I'm not active at all <laughs> on social media. Really good. So uh, unfortunately, people can't and follow me that way. I just ride the wave of Catholic answers here and allow them uh, to take up that work on social media, whether that's for good or ill. I have no idea. <laughs> God will have to show me that on the other side of the veil. But as of now, I don't have any social media presence other than in and through Catholic answers. I think we all know it's probably a good thing, Carlo. It's probably, it's probably a good <laughs> well, thing. I don't know about that. Right. I debate, go back and forth on that, but uh, I'm just trying to, Stay focused on my wife and my kids, man, and and the work that I do here at Catholic Answers. I just, to be frank, I just don't have enough bandwidth <laughs> and mental energy to uh, keep up with all of that stuff, man. I so. hear you. I hear you. Well, it's great stuff, Carlo. And I got to say, if you do go to Catholic Answers shop, shop.catholicanswers.com, and type in Carlo Broussard, it does say, did you mean Camwo Broussard? K-A-M-W-O. So I don't know who's running the tech there at Catholic Answers, but obviously playing Interesting. A, pr a prank on you there, Carla. Your books do show up, but it does suspect that I meant to type in Camwo. So, uh, Interesting. I, yeah, I don't know who Camwo Broussard is. Maybe that was your Cajun accordion playing nickname uh, back, back in your 20s, Carla. But, uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you so, brought that up. That's shop.catholic.com. That's where your listeners and viewers can get uh, my books and stuff. And other resources that we have here at Catholic Answers. Your stuff and Camwo stuff, too. He's probably he's a pretty cool, he's a pretty cool guy, Carlo. Hey, thanks for being here again. Thanks for spending some time with us again on this show. It's always a pleasure, Carlo. Uh, fantastic book. It's wonderful stuff. All your stuff is great, Carlo. So always happy to have you on. Thanks show. for having me, man. Hey, come back anytime. I want to say God bless you and the work you're doing for the church, man. It's great stuff. So thank you so much and uh, take care. Thank you, Keith. God bless you, brother. Well, there it was, my friends, my conversation with Carlo Broussard from Catholic Answers. Great guy, great conversation, great ideas, an awesome way of reframing these kinds of conversations. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Hopefully you learned something new, a new way to respond in kindness and compassion and charity to these common objections to our Catholic beliefs. It's a great way of equipping people to understand us, how to explain our faith and give an answer for the reason why we have the hope that we have. That's biblical, isn't it? <laughs> My evangelical roots are showing. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website, at CordialCatholic on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok these days. Putting out some short videos and clips of the show on that brand new scary medium, for me, at least. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook and CordialCatholic at gmail.com to write into the show. I have lots of emails. I'm sorry, friends, piling up. I'll get back to those as soon as I humanly possibly can. I do appreciate your notes and feedback. So thank you, friends, for your correspondence. I do treasure that very much. It's very nice to hear from people, real living people who are out there listening uh, week after week. So thank you and do write into the show. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. 
paypal.me slash cordialcatholic or patreon.com slash cordialcatholic to support the show youtube.com slash the cordialcatholic we're there as well to watch what you are listening to and please do stop for a second and leave a rating and review if you can of the show those ratings and reviews on spotify and apple Podcasts help to push the podcast out to new people and and that's the whole mission the whole point and purpose of this thing is to spread the good news of the catholic church Found by Christ himself, so not a bad deal. Thanks for listening, friends. Talk to you again next week. Take care, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.